perfection. <laughs> well, why are we playing the theremin, guys? Well, first of all, hello, welcome. This is Last Refuge of the Incompetent. I'm Gaul. I'm the loud one, usually, <laughs> when you're I'm listening. Moses. I'm Moses, and I'm going to try to really scream into the microphone this time. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm Ted, and I'm getting closer to the microphone as we speak. Mm. And I'm just going to keep getting closer and closer Don't eat it. and closer one day. the show goes on. Oh, that was some. That was ASMR Ted. Yeah. That was good. Uh, if you want to check out our YouTube channel, <laughs> we, we do, do have a YouTube. It's going to be all AS- ASMR Ted coming mm-hmm. soon. Uh, this week we're talking about '50s sci-fi movies. Yeah, are they some B movies, maybe, or just you know, <laughs> kind of cheesy? B plus, uh, but we're B plus. I I enjoyed them. Uh, and they are the ones we mentioned last week, some original thes. That's mm-hmm. the blob, the fly, and the thing from another world. Mm-hmm. Uh, from 1951, 57, and 58, those three movies. We're not really going to talk about the remakes much. We're just going to talk about the originals. <laughs> <laughs> A lot of theremin soundtracks, which is mm-hmm. why why we were thereminning it up. Sometimes when you think it's a theremin, it's actually an Ons Martino. Like in the Are original s- Star Trek soundtrack, that's not a theremin. That's an Ons Martino, and that's not mm. Wikipedia Corner. I just already knew that. That's mm. off the top of the old Ted Dome. <laughs> There's a lot of classic, cool soundtracks. A movie we're not going to talk about, Forbidden Planet, stars a young Leslie Nielsen. What's what's Wait, the, this what is it? not the animated movie? What am I thinking of? Oh, that's a Savage Planet, or that's, oh no. yeah. That's right, yeah, Planet Sauvage. Which is called a fantastic planet in English, I think. Anyway, since that's not what (laughs) I was talking about, we can continue. (laughs) Well, so I found out that it has the very, Forbidden Planet has the first all-electronic film score created by Mm. married couple Louise and Bibi Baron, a pair of avant-garde composers, and they got into film because they were not making any money as electronic (laughs) music artists. And they got out of film because they were denied musical credits or Oscar consideration because the union was like, is electronic music actually music? You didn't pay 50 musicians for this score, so... (laughs) We're not paying no robots. And then, I I mean, you have to play the Beware of the Blob theme song written by Burt Bacharach. And Mac David. Yeah, the theme song is way cheesier than the rest of the movie, and I guess it was written afterwards and kind of uh, used against the director's wishes. Like, he wanted, like, a creepy kind of moody theme to open up the movie, but no, they go with this totally cheesy, it's blotchy, it's blotchy. Uh, That theme song, I think, definitely inspired the theme song to Killer Clowns from Outer Space by the Dickies. We gotta play that one, too. That was an 80s, that one is extremely cheesy movie. Also filmed in my hometown of Santa Cruz. Oh, hey now. 
The blob was filmed close to where I live right now. Oh, yes. Pennsylvania. Yes. Phoenixville. Womp womp. <laughs> <laughs> That's the, your other review of Phoenixville? <laughs> deepest pool of deepest blue shall swim to you. Morning never waits for you. Shall wait for you and the stars. Hey there, everybody. It's Gall again. As always, interrupting to remind you that if you would like to listen to the episode without all the music edited out, then why don't you go to our website, lastrefugepod.com, and it tells you all the neat ways that you can listen to all the music that we talk about that we can't play on a podcast. For legal reasons. And if you don't care, please enjoy the wonderful sounds of Focus Bird. So this era of 50s science fiction films is a very, like, distinct era. It's, like, considered this golden age of sci-fi film. And it was this big explosion in sci-fi filmmaking. A lot of it had to do with this post-World War II. So there was this new teenage market that they were making films for. And so a lot of it was this, like, kind of cheap, fun special effects movies. Um, It was released for drive-in market, basically. As I was watching the movies, I could see, especially The Blob, I could see being, like, a fun teen, just for teen movie. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's got a bunch of 28-year-olds playing 16-year-olds. <laughs> yeah, God. That's, that's a good teen movie. 28 at best. Yeah. Stephen I, I Queen looks... Oh, he's 28? Yeah, I, I looked 20. it up and Stephen Queen is 28 playing a 16-year-old. Yeah. But yeah, the other guys could easily be older. Yeah, and then they have, like, for some inexplicable reason, the parents put, like, really yeah, bad... Yeah, the gray the hair. Gray the hair. <laughs> yeah, just get an older guy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> There's a lot of themes in that era that you can see throughout the films um, that all had to do with what you could guess, you know what I mean? Cold War fears, mounting nuclear anxiety fears. And then there's this big kind of flying saucer craze that was really uh, milked during the fifties. <laughs> a kind of hysteria. Even. I think like a lot of the crazy monsters that you see, not not so much in the movies we're going to talk about, but in some other movies are these kind of hubris of scientists tinkering with nuclear technology and creating these big monsters that are going to take over. Yeah, um, I think we got two good, two pretty good scientist archetypes in the the fly and the thing from another world. The blob didn't have any scientists. It was just a helpless town falling prey to an indestructible blob. <laughs> uh, and, and nobody believes the the kids. That was the moral of that one. But in the in the fly and in um, the thing, there's they both have these like scientists that are so driven by their discoveries that they kind you know either take it too far or lose their mind or lose their morality. Some of the movies are actually commenting on this cold war fear of you know communism 
taking over. I think that's what the thing is trying to say. But then I was reading someone who was trying to say that about the blob, and then the the film director was like, "No, the blob is about uh, yeah, <laughs> it's not about communism taking over. Yeah, it's just about- because it's red and it absorbs a, <laughs> a, a young American's yeah. blood. Yeah. Uh, yeah. This guy, yeah, the director really said." That guy has no idea what he's talking about. Yeah, the blob, I mean, mostly is about, like, cops not believing these street racing kids, and eventually they just are forced to. I also really like the bit at the, closer to the end of the movie, where the the little boy, like, comes out with his cowboy gun and just, like, shooting at the blob and then, like, (laughs) throws his gun at it. Oh, yeah. I love that move when, in any movie, you know action movie or any movie when someone is emptying a gun and then they just throw the gun at the person yeah. <laughs> it's always funny to me for some reason and having a bunch of the john wick movies i'm like ah oh, what a great move by john <laughs> and it's yeah. keanu but yeah i don't know if that little kid is supposed to be like commentary on the closing of the frontier but funny. <laughs> <laughs> these are all like very f- funny movies i think Either intentionally or unintentionally, I, I had a few chuckles as I was. Oh yeah, the dialogue in the thing is like wham bam, all everyone's talking to each other and making making jokes about each other. And yeah. in the fly, I, I feel like it's less intentionally funny. <laughs> yes. I don't know, like all the scientists' lines are just so you know he's he's lying in the backyard and his wife comes out and says, "What are you doing, honey?" And he says, "I'm just staring up at the sky at God, perhaps <laughs> contemplating the infinite." <laughs> I'm just so happy to be alive. <laughs> yeah. Ah, I'm sure I'll continue to remain alive. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing's going to spoil this. Certainly in the next know. 60 minutes or so. <laughs> and then later the guy says, like, oh, wonders if uh, he asked the wife if, if they've been testing the teleportation machine on animals. And it's like, no, no, we, we respect the life too much. And then later we find out that he did test it on the cat and it disappeared. And the wife is aghast. And the scientist says... It would be so funny if life weren't so precious. It's, it's just, that was an incredible delivery. It would almost be funny if life weren't so precious. Oh, there was some uh, terrible acting in that movie. I, mean, I Vincent Price was was. Yeah, he put Vincent Price puts in a pretty weird performance. I mean, I don't know. I guess that's apparently this was his first movie that got him into being a, a yeah. creepy horror guy. Yeah, and in but this he wasn't one, even that just, creepy in it. Yeah. No, he was just a sad brother-in-law. <laughs> yeah. Sad brother. Yeah, they're not I wanted very to... convincing as siblings of each other because they're no. like... No. <laughs> There's a point that I remember where I was like, wow, Vincent Price is telling you that he's acting right now where he like walks into an empty room and then he purposefully walks to the left and stops and like grabs his chin and thinks and then walks to the right and grabs his chin and thinks and then walks to the phone <laughs> to make a phone call. This <laughs> pondering. And I was like, man, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> you are? That's who I am? <laughs> you know, I just, want, I just want to keep talking about my favorite moments from The Fly. Yeah, also that awful, their awful child <laughs> Oh, yeah, uh, he's weird. You know how Re- women are. Re- yeah, he's <laughs> referring yeah. to his own mother. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> now, I've met one woman, so you know how they are. Yes. It's my mom. The Fly got adapted to a movie from a story published in Playboy. 
and it yeah. got adapted like within a year, which I guess people really liked this short story in Playboy. Yeah, I I read um, it and it was adapted pretty much word for word. The story mm-hmm. unfolds in the exact same way. Like we we see we see the murder and then we hear the real story from the scientist's wife, and also almost all the dialogue from the stories in the movie. And the movie just added more stuff like that hilarious those scientist lines about. It'd be funny if life weren't so sacred. <laughs> and my favorite thing that they kept is um, having everyone be French. Yes, um, why? So why? <laughs> I guess the I guess the author of the original story was like British French or something. Mm. But like, okay, everyone... but they're French Canadian though. Yeah, it's set in Montreal now. Uh, yeah, oh. it's not France. It's I, it's Montreal. I yeah. totally missed that it's in Montreal. <laughs> yeah, I I didn't um, quite notice it until I think like the. The ambulance at the end in Montreal. Mm. I mean, nobody sounds French Canadian either. <laughs> no, Vincent Price certainly doesn't. <laughs> no, I don't even. He doesn't sound anything. He's got his own accent. I love being a Quebecois industrialist <laughs> and scientist. <laughs> I sure do love it. My favorite thing is I called my mom right. I just talked to her today, and I was like, oh, I, I just watched The Fly, and she was like, oh, it's supposed to be a really scary movie. And my brother in the background was like, no, no, not the David Cronenberg <laughs> one. Yeah. And it was it's so funny to me with these horror, quote-unquote, horror movies from the 50s, is that they were probably scary to people, but, and, like, even there was this, there's this um critic that I found that was saying that it was one of the most revolting science horror films ever perpetrated. And then somebody else wrote, it contains briefly two of the most sickening sights. And I was like, wait, are we t- are they talking about the same movie that I just watched? Yeah, it's, yeah. Just, it's just a dude I, with like a plastic like fly head for yeah, two the, minutes. The fly of head, I mean, you know, it was good for 1958, wasn't the most terrifying. I thought they did do a pretty good job at the very end, though, where we, we see the fly caught in the web with the human's the guy's head, the human yeah. head, and he's screaming as this giant spider is clearly about to devour him. I do love that after that happens, the police inspector who's witnessed it says, I don't think I'll ever forget that scream. And the scream in, in question was him going, Please help me! Help me! Oh no! Get away yeah, from the, me! The sound wasn't very good. But the visual was great. <laughs> I don't watch a lot of horror because it scares me. But like, I guess it's just gotten progressively scarier, right? Because something comes out and it's scary for an audience at the time. And the filmmaker next time is like, I got to make something even more mm-hmm. shocking. That's why when you're looking at watching these things now, you're like, okay, am I supposed to be scared of that big jello thing walking down the street? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, no. I think someone. I remember hearing someone saying that if they took the like The Exorcist when that came out, and it's like, my God, if we took this back and showed it in the fifties, society would have collapsed. Because <laughs> <laughs> The Exorcist had people like passing out in the theaters. It was scary. <laughs> the Fly sort of tries to accentuate the scariness by just showing one of the characters reacting in fear to it. Another shot where the wife first sees the fly head, and then you see like the kaleidoscope of her screaming. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, that was good. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The compound eye. Also, the movie opens, and it seems like it's just like a weird murder mystery. Like you don't even get into the sci-fi stuff until unless you've seen the trailer. But yeah, so right. I thought that was nice. And uh, yeah, the the watchman at the the factory finds the body, and he screams. Uh, but you don't hear him scree- scream. You see his mouth open, and then you hear the phone ringing, and that's where we we 
it that scene overlays and we cut to Vincent Price. That was pretty funny. I thought that was a cool choice. <laughs> yeah, there was some cinematic cinematic choices that I really liked. I think there's like a point when she's like she first sees a little fly flying around and the cop is like, What the what what is wrong with her? And then she, they cut to just the fly and then Yeah, some real good nice. fly close ups. <laughs> real good fly close ups. Yeah. Have you guys seen the remake, the Cronenberg one? Oh yeah, it's one of my favorites. But I mean, the original Fly is structured in a very interesting way that makes it like engaging, even though you don't get weird Fly hybrid Jeff Goldblum. I just learned like yesterday or realized yesterday that there's a sequel to Cronenberg's Fly where Eric Stoltz plays Jeff Goldblum's son. Haven't seen it. Didn't hear it was very good, so I didn't watch son, it. Son of the Mask status? <laughs> yeah, well, I think there was a Son of the Blob. Like, there were, like, two sequels to the the original Blob before they even did the remake, remake. of the Blob in the 80, 84 or whatever. I feel like the Blob has to reproduce asexually. I don't know if that would count. Would that be a son? I feel like you know, there's just more blob. Blob McBlob, right? That's what you call the son of. Doesn't, doesn't when he goes to touch the weird little gooey thing in the meteorite, only a little bit gets on his stick, and then there's still some left somewhere? Maybe that's how there's a son, is what I'm trying to say. Maybe. That's true. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Beware the blob, also known as son of blob, the blob 2, or the blob returns. Mm. 1972. Music by Mort Garçon. Uh, who did Plantasia on our mm. last episode? Morty. <laughs> uh, Morty Garson. Oh, and by the way, for those of you that are regular listeners, we learned after the fact that Stevie, Steve Land, the uh, from Semiosis, <laughs> the super intelligent bamboo, was named, named after, after Stevie Wonder. Because <laughs> that's yeah, his, his real, real name. name is- Stevland Morris? I forgot the last name. I'm so sorry. This is, I have a book recommendation for people that are really into men turning into other things. <laughs> so I'm going to throw it in there. If you haven't read The Breast by Philip Roth, it's a novella written in 1972. I would recommend it. It's kind of fun. Philip Roth is a nice guy to read. <laughs> I don't know <laughs> anything yeah. of it. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, it's, you can imagine what happens to the guy. He turns into a 155-pound breast. And it's it's a take on Kafka's Metamorphosis, and it's funny. It's a funny book. Gall recommends. Right? Have you read Kafka's Metamorphosis? That's a funny one too. So in the fly, you know, he's turned into this horrible bug hybrid creature, and he's starting to lose. The scientist is starting to lose his mind, so he can still communicate for a while through typing, but he can feel his thoughts dissolving. So he he just says to his wife, "Please, will you kill me and also destroy all evidence because this." technology is simply too powerful. But maybe he also read Kafka's Metamorphosis and saw that what that guy's life as a bug was like and it wasn't good, so it's like, yeah, I don't want that for me. I'm just gonna get out of here. His entire head gets replaced with a fly, but it takes a while for him to start feeling weird. Yeah, I guess his brain is still in there. Yeah, there's like a fight between... The two you know, his entities. Fly urges. Yeah, his fly mm-hmm. urges. He has to keep. Uh, he has one fly arm, and he has to keep <laughs> swatting it away. Yeah. <laughs> For some inexplicable reason, his one fly arm really wants to do something to his wife. That's not explained. Just inferred. <laughs> like he destroys all of his, all of his papers and the equipment itself. 
which it's, I mean, it's like about scientific hubris and whatnot, but it really seems like his problem is more just really sloppy laboratory procedures. Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> um, his technology seems to work perfectly fine. He's just not, he just doesn't have proper protocols in place. Yeah, Moses, it's, it's a, ti- it's a time travel more. movie, right? That's like the technology he's making to move. Or is it more of like a beam? No, it's just transportation. Beam, yeah. Yeah, it was the transporter, the disintegrator, reintegrator. One of my, another one of my favorite parts of that film is the first time he does it and is showing his wife. He's like, "No, it's it's just like broadcast television, but for Adams." She's like, "Really? Because it seems physically impossible." And he's like, yeah. "No, it's just like television." <laughs> <laughs> Wonkavision, have you heard of it? Yeah. Three decades, decades ago, they would have said broadcast TV is impossible. So is this impossible? I think not. Um, it's like, now we can transport things with like almost no energy use. I'm like, really? Because it seems like you used a huge amount of energy to move something six feet here. So. Yeah, all those neon lights for his lab. Big, like, mainframe computer in his uh, yeah. Quebec warehouse. There's definitely this scientific hubris theme that you see in a lot of sci-fi from the 50s. I wonder why. (laughs) (laughs) The the fly, I mean, it spells it out at the very end where the detective, after hearing the wife's whole story about what really happened, the the detective says, or Vincent Price says to him, so do you believe it? He's like, no, you can't transport matter. It's physically impossible. <laughs> like, he says the same thing. Like, so she must be insane and she killed her husband. But eventually they see the spider eating the little human-headed fly and they freak out and say, okay, I guess uh, I guess we'll set her free and I guess we'll, we'll find a way to make his death rule to suicide. And so they we get a happy ending. Set her set free. Her set, her free. Set, uh, oh, the, oh, sorry. So um, they murdered that the, fly man. Yeah, I mean, they set him <laughs> free. The uh, from, his, from his prison. Yeah. Uh, no, yeah, <laughs> sorry. They won't convict the wife for murder. They'll let her go and and so she lives with Vincent Price and, the, and her son. The final scene of the movie is the little kid coming up to Vincent Price, and he says, uh, Mommy said to ask you, why did Daddy die? And then Vincent Price gives this whole speech about how he was a scientific explorer, and so it was noble but dangerous. But I love how that sets up, like, that means that the kid went up to the mom and said, why did Daddy die? And she said, uh, ask your uncle. <laughs> <laughs> And the kid thought, eh, women. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I couldn't possibly explain this to you. <laughs> yeah, yeah I mean, suddenly Vincent Price is incredibly eloquent about the science as this noble pursuit. And if you put your life in, sometimes it, you put your life in danger. Yeah, I mean, you could look at The Fly as being about scientific hubris. Or you could look at it uh, as a story of a guy finally being able to get with his brother's wife, who he's in love with. Is that what's inferred? Yeah. Is that what's happening? Because they do make a mention in the beginning where he's like, you're single still, huh? And it's like, yeah, I haven't met the right one or something well, like that. No, when the early on, um, when the police investigator is talking with Vincent Price, he just suddenly says, like, you're in love with her, aren't you? And it's like, yes. Yes, okay. <laughs> right, so they yes. end up together. Yeah. very early on in his career big anti-semite <laughs> mm, that's on the con list <laughs> his daughter his daughter wrote like a tell-all book about living as a price or whatever anyway vincent price big <laughs> fan of hitler <laughs> <laughs> he seems to have been like associated with progressive causes later in his life i so think he redeemed weird. himself i don't really know although maybe i'm 
maybe I'm the wrong one. If I'm wrong, please call. <laughs> Tell me I'm wrong. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is just in his Wikipedia page. That's true. So. Supposedly based on his daughter's memoir. So. Who would be slandering Vincent Price's Wikipedia page? Would it be <laughs> Bella Lugosi's children? <laughs> Uh, that's the kind of feud I'd be into. <laughs> a century-long um, B-movie horror family feud. Do you guys want to talk a little bit about The Thing? Yes. Gotta talk about something. I think The Thing was my favorite of those three movies. Because I think it was really funny, like, intentionally. And I enjoyed that. I think it was definitely my least favorite of the Ooh. three. But, Ooh. yeah, it was kind of it was kind of intentionally funny at the time. Um, <laughs> it definitely had the most kind of natural dialogue. Are you because, serious? You know, in that beginning scene where the three men are talking to each other and it's like, Scotty, what are you here for? Oh, I'm here for, um, for journalism. It, it oh, has, okay. yeah, yeah, maybe, maybe natural is wrong, but it like it, it set that tone early on and it kept with it and it, like once you get into the rhythm of it, I found it, in the rhythm of it, I found it really yeah. fun. Yeah. As opposed to the blob where Steve McQueen is trying to play like a meek 16 year old talking <laughs> to the cops. Like, no, he can't pull that off. When we meet, finally meet the scientist guy in the thing, he also has these pretty grand proclamations about the role of science and humanity's progress. Eventually, like, by the end of the movie, he's like, no, we all must, it's our duty to sacrifice all of our lives for the advancement of science when this hulking alien is just slowly walking in to destroy them. The original book, novella, is all about, yeah, this thing can impersonate other people, and so it's rife with all this paranoia. And that's not in the 1951 thing mm-hmm. at all. It's just a uh, hulking alien slowly walking towards everyone to destroy them. Okay. So maybe the 51 thing isn't the way it is because John Campbell was like a big old racist. Oh, was but, he? Oh, yeah. Really into like pseudoscience. As oh, it was written in 1938, his, his novella. Oh, like a eugenic sort of situation? Yeah. I mean, I think he was just also like a... A crank and kind of a um, devoted uh, contrarian. But the thing, yeah, like the scientist is basically just wrong all the time. Yeah. And um, the clean cut military men have to come in and do the right thing. And the lesson that the journalist, like the journalist spends, the journalist character spends most of the movie just complaining about how everyone's (laughs) incompetent. But then at the end, he gives this broadcast speech that it's basically about, like, watch out for aliens at all times. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, We've won our first battle with invaders from outer space, but keep watching the skies. (laughs) That was not subtle. (laughs) No, and I think that one is very clearly supposed to be about the the communist threat, the red threat. Yeah, that's how I read the film. Yeah. Yeah, it's like the, the, the film is way more military focused than the story, the original story like the john carpenter movie from 82 stay closer to the text of that story yeah but you know it explored different things like it explored all the paranoia and this one's just like we are being invaded right now i think that's partially why my opinion of this of the thing was a little bit lower than the other that does just because the carpenter version is so good pales in comparison Oh, but, I haven't seen I haven't seen the any of the remakes. Oh, so. oh they're better. Well, the new Blob is probably not any better. But the, <laughs> I mean, I know. Yeah. I I mean, I should have I should see the Fly because Gina Davis and Jeff Goldblum, Jeff Jeff Goldblum. Goldblum are are you know amazing. So yeah, and it's uh it's like 
It's really like a greased up sexy gold bloom too. Like, yeah. Oh, that's the best kind of gold bloom. <laughs> Before his body starts decaying in All front right. of Earth, Earth Earth Girls Are Easy Gold Bloom. Yeah. They were both in Earth Girls Are Easy. You guys seen that one? Gina yeah, yeah. yeah that's a uh, Damon Wayans and Jim Carrey. Jim Carrey and uh, Jeff Goldblum and Gina Davis. <laughs> and I think Gina <laughs> Davis's friend is is the really annoying '80s singer. Um, Julie Brown. Meatloaf? Julie Brown is. Yeah, Julie Brown. Friends. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Julie Brown. The plot is based on the song "Earth Girls Are Easy" from Julie Brown's <laughs> 1984 mini album "Goddess in Progress." Anyway, that's one of my favorite. That's like my sexual awakening as a kid was like <laughs> flipping through. Um, <laughs> they're very cute. You have all three types of person. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, the thing sort of could have fit in our last um, episodes. Yeah. Since the alien species that invades is, they describe it as being like a plant. They they describe it as a carrot. Yeah, they show it. (laughs) Yeah, the the reporter guy's like, you're telling me this thing's a carrot? (laughs) It's the only plant I know. (laughs) And they show it growing early on. They, like, cultivate the seed, and it's like a flower sort of thing. One of the other scientist guys is they're, they're, is trying to explain that this is a plant and they're like, what? An intelligent plant is like, oh, plant intelligence is old news. <laughs> <laughs> Just think of the telegraph vine. And like, yeah, and it has the whole conversation that we were talking about last week. But then when they show, like, when it's lumbering around, it's just a frank and big Frankenstein looking yeah, guy. It's just a dumb it's just a man. <laughs> yeah. I think the coolest part of the movie is the first time they try to defeat it by, like, basically covering it in gasoline and setting it on fire. Like, it's just so clear that, yeah, they set an entire room on fire. <laughs> yeah, they like, were throwing the buckets people, of kerosene. Yeah, half the people in the scene guys. are on fire. And then, like, when they're putting out, putting it out, like, oh, yeah, they're actually just putting out a fire, they said, yes. and put it is on this- the scene. Is 1951 pre a lot of those like um, uh, movie decency laws? The Hayes Code, no, yeah, the Hayes definitely code. after it. Mm, okay, because they have some. They have some. This is oh yeah, the insinuation. The military man's kind of romance with <laughs> yeah. uh, one of the women at the Arctic Station, and she yeah. ties up. She ties him up romantically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cool. yeah, yeah, and it's and she definitely. It's implied that they both like heavily drink together. Yes. Um, yeah, it's kind of a little transgressive, but all very, like, innuendo. Kept within, yeah. Yeah, I guess that's, like, what what you had to do then, post-Hays Code. But, yeah, the MPAA adopted the code in 1930, began originally enforcing it in 1934, continued through the 50s. What's the, what's the th- towing the line is when you, like, follow something. What's the thing when you're, like, are technically following it, but kind of pushing... Pushing, pushing the boundaries. Kind of Listener, if you know <laughs> the idiom Ted is <laughs> trying to <laughs> express. Please just send an email with all of the idioms. I've forgotten them. Since I watched all three of these movies today, I did a little triple feature. I got like 1950s patter. 
stuck in my head. My favorite quote is from The Blob, and it's in the beginning, where Steve McQueen goes, well, why don't we go back into town and I'll apologize over a sandwich? <laughs> that would work on me. <laughs> that was really good. Oh, yeah. There's also later when The Blob gets out and it's going to eat this guy, who, this mechanic who's working on a car, and he's talking mm-hmm. about how he can't wait to go to his cabin with his boys and get completely... <laughs> Uh, sloshed. What did he say? Yeah, I'm gonna get rip roaring. I am gonna get so drunk. You, ah, oh, I'm gonna be great. Yeah, and then he gets eaten by the blob. <laughs> Moses, is this correct? In computing, a blob is a collection of binary data stored as a single entity. Blobs are typically images, audio, or other multimedia objects, though sometimes ex- executable. Executable code is stored as a blob. Blobs originally just big amorphous chunks of data invented by Jim Starkey at DEC, who described them as the thing that ate Cincinnati, Cleveland, or whatever, from the 1958 Steve McQueen movie, The Blob. Is that correct? Or am yeah, I, yeah. Don't blob, know? blob is still used in computer science today. Okay, cool. For just to mean a chunk of data. The very final line of The Blob, like they find a way to kill, to get rid of it. They can't kill it. Acid doesn't work. Fire doesn't work. Electricity oh. doesn't work. And But they finally realize that freezing it slows it down, at least. And so they, they get the military to come in and freeze it and drop it off in the Arctic. And the final line of the movie is, well, I guess we're safe. As long as the Arctic stays warm. Stays cold. <laughs> <Okay>. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then, uh, and then we the, the end comes up on the screen for five seconds, and then it morphs into a question mark. <laughs> How do they know? How do they know that the Arctic would melt? Early climate change film underrecognized as such. <laughs> <laughs> and my only other Steve McQueen fact, which he's this like blonde-haired, blue-eyed American man, and he started out in like Yiddish theater, <laughs> like his first. Yeah, so so reportedly. He delivered his first dialogue on a theater stage in 1952. Okay, so he paid for his acting school through the GI Bill. Thanks, GI Bill, for white people. Anyway, so (laughs) (laughs) he was in this 1952 play produced by Yiddish theater star Molly Pecan, and his character spoke one brief line in Yiddish, and it says, Alt is farlorn, all is lost. (laughs) And I'm just imagining, like, Steve McQueen saying, Alt is farlorn, or what are you know? That line that the scientist says, it'd just be so funny if life were sacred, reminded me of the line from this movie Ted recommended to me a while ago called The Lost Skeleton of Cadaver, which is very directly a parody of all, all the 50s B-movies. There's a line in there where the scientist guy, and this movie was made in like 2001, but it's in black and white and has all the, has, it perfects, the, nails the look of all these movies. And the dialogue. So it has a scientist guy in there who is, uh, you know, in this cabin in the woods and there's some monsters out there. And he says, huh, sounds like some, some, sounds like some strange out there. Well, good thing I don't believe in anything. <laughs> I'm a scientist. I don't believe in anything. <laughs> and that really sums up the message of all these movies. <laughs> oh, no, not this lady again. Yep, that's right. It's Gull, reminding you that if you've gotten this far into the episode and you're still wondering... Where all the music we talk about is, well, you're listening to a podcast, and so we had to edit it all out. But do not fret. Go to lastrefugepod.com, and you'll find all the great ways that you can listen to the music that we talk about, and then you'll feel fulfilled, and your life will be complete. 
Okay. Next week, we're doing a little compilation again. End of season two, starting of season three. What's our website? Lastrefugepod.com. And our email is thelastrefugeoftheincompetent at gmail.com. But really, just go to Last Refuge Pod. You can find our every yeah. possible link, all the yeah. articles, all our references. You can find everything except pictures of our faces, which we refuse to release. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, uh, you know, reach out. <laughs> Tell us that you're there. <laughs> Leave us a voicemail, 805-253-3091. And, um, you know, be kind. Be kind yeah, to your keep, fellow man. Keep watching the skies and competitors. <laughs>